uh, well, I came across an interesting story. I guess we was reminded of an interesting story this week. You know, we, uh, if you have a Bible you brought with you, phenomenal. I've got one right here. Um, if you don't have one, we have them on the pew rack. If you don't want the pew rack, we have them on, you can ha- get it on your phone. We're going to be actually in John chapter 4 today. So you can pull that out. It'll be on the screens. It's also on page 888 if you're going to use a Bible there on the rack. Um, but there was a time in the history of the world when that was not the case. There was a time in a certain part of the world where it was illegal to have Bibles in a language that you could understand. It was a time when it was only acceptable for Bibles to be in possession of certain kinds of ministers so that the regular people would not interpret it however they wanted. They had to have a specially licensed interpreter, and so it was illegal for people to have them. Well, there was a Christian man named William who thought that this was wrong. He would read the Bible and say, that's not what I read in my Bible, that the Bible is for everyone. The Bible is for everyone to have, to read, to, to have their own lives changed by the words of God, not to have some specially you know, trained interpreter sit on high and, and spout it out, but for everybody to have it, and they, they can be changed daily. I mean, how can you meditate on the Word of God morning, noon, and night from Psalms? How can you do that if you don't have the Bible to do that? And so what, he, what William set out to do was to translate the Bible, so he had to do some schooling himself, was to translate the Bible and put it in a language that everybody could speak, that everyone would be able to understand, which, honestly, the New Testament was written in Greek, not just regular Greek, but a special kind of Greek that everybody spoke, that everybody spoke. And the reason it was done, it was done that way is so that everyone could understand the New Testament. That's why we, you know, new translations of the Bible come out all the time because our language changes all the time and they want to put the Bible in, an, in, a, in a, a translation, in a version that we understand better. And so this guy William did that and his name got put on a hit list by the church because he's out there distributing these Bibles he's interpreted to people and uh, they did not like this at all. And so William was on the run, but also handing out Bibles everywhere he went, to anybody and everywhere, at every opportunity. Well, he ended up getting arrested and put on trial, a mock trial, a fake trial, and it was a bunch of lies and stuff, and, and it was a bunch of things that uh, they, they trumped up to do what they wanted to do, really. And he was, ended up being sentenced and executed And just as a show of spite, after they executed him, after he was dead, they burned his body, just in case. They they knocked, they took care of the situation. But, (laughs) to show how God works, within just a handful of years after William died, the Bible was beginning to be distributed in a language for everyone to speak. William's Bible was being distributed by the government for people to read. His name was William Tyndale. Have you ever heard of Tyndale Publishers? That's because of him. The Bible that we have today in a language we can read is as a result of that. You see, William was a rule breaker. He broke the rules to put the Bible in the hands of people because the Bible, the Word of God, is what changes lives. It changes lives phenomenally. It could change anybody and everybody's life in such an incredible way. And so William put that out there as this rule breaker to do that, and it ended up getting him killed. Well, we're going to look today, we're starting a new series today, actually called Culture Breaker. But the, today's message is called Rule Breaker. And looking at Jesus, rarely followed the rules. <laughs> Uh, the cultural rules, the, the traditional rules, and he violated them many times. He did it quite on purpose and for a purpose. And so today we're going to look at one of those instances in John chapter 4. Now, <laughs> I'll give you a complete backstory to this. I had worked through this passage and prepared a message, and this past, I felt I was good to go Monday. I had the message done and I worked through it on Tuesday about five minutes before I walked out of the office Tuesday afternoon uh, God said yeah we're doing a different message (laughs) and so uh, from there through the rest of the week the message that I'm giving today is not the one I had prepared 
Uh, we may never hear that one. That one is in my notes in Evernote on my computer, and it's locked away somewhere. But this is the one God wanted you to have today. And so that's where we're going. John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to work through the passage, and then we're going to come back and look at one particular instance that really is quite incredible. And so here we go. John chapter 4, verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, just give you a little geography. Judea, where Jerusalem was, was like in the south. Up north, you had Galilee. That's where he did a lot of miracles, did a lot of teaching and stuff. Well, right in the middle of Judea, Jerusalem, Galilee, right in the middle was Samaria. It was a place that Jews did not particularly like people who lived there, and the Samaritans who lived in Samaria did not like the Jews. It was a generational hatred, a generational racism that existed there, uh, and Jesus, it said, had to walk right through Samaria. Now, if anybody from Galilee wanted to go down to Judea, to Jerusalem, to worship God in the temple, they would more often than not walk through Samaria. A few really spiteful people would go around because they didn't want to even step foot in the country. Uh, but the vast majority of people, what history tells us, would walk through. But they wouldn't interact with Samaritans. They wouldn't interact with Samaritans. They wouldn't eat Samaritan food. They wouldn't go anywhere near Samaritans because Samaritans were dirty and gross and bad and God hated them. He didn't, but that's what they thought and that's the way they acted. But they would still walk through the country because they wanted to get to um, the temple. They wanted to get to church on time as they took the shortest route. Right? And, you know, sometimes in the mornings, some of us are running a little later than others, and we get to church a little bit later than others, and that's just the way it works. You know, you know God's not going to uh, have a, a uh, punctuality contest in heaven. Uh, we all get there when we get there. And so Jesus and his disciples were going to walk straight through Samaria to get to Galilee. Verse 5. So he came to uh, a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near a field, or the field, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about noon. And so what scholars, really smart Bible people, will tell us, it was about the sixth hour. So most likely they started traveling in the distance to this town. Uh, they probably started traveling about dawn, about 6 a.m. And they've been traveling for six hours. It's... Noon. So I get tired driving for six hours, and here they are walking for six hours. So naturally, Jesus is tired. And so they get to this town. Jacob's well is there. So Jesus sits down at Jacob's well, and uh, he just sits there. And now, but he's not alone for long. Verse 7 A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, there's a whole lot of problems with this. First off, Jesus sent his disciples into town to buy food. Typically, Jews would not have bought food from Samaritans because Samaritans would have touched the food to give to them. In extreme circumstances, they would have bought food from Samaritans if it had been packaged and if they were able to clean it in a certain way. But that's not what we have here. Jesus and his disciples into town did not discriminate, did not put up any stipulations about what kind of food needed to be bought. He just sent them into town to buy food. And the disciples seemingly were okay with it. And so Jesus had been influencing his disciples so much that their wariness of buying something from Samaritans wasn't an issue anymore. They go into town to buy food from Samaritans. But in addition to that, Jesus asked this woman for a drink. And this shocks the woman, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Now, this is all kinds of fascinating, because, again, typically, Jews and Samaritans would not talk to each other. They would look the other way. They would act like they don't exist, like they're not even there. But Jesus walked through, Samaritan, walked through Samaria, sends the disciples to buy food from Samaritans. Jesus speaks to this Samaritan. But not only that, this is a woman. Even today in the Middle East, if you're not related to someone of the opposite sex, you do not talk to them in public. People would look at that and say that you're flirting or something. That 
just because you're having a conversation that there must be something going on there. And so they, opposite, the opposite of sex, if you weren't related, just did not commune in public ever, and they still don't. And, and so this woman is shocked. Here's Jesus, not only walking to Samaria, not only sending his disciples to buy Samaritan food, now Jesus is asking a Samaritan a question, asking the Samaritan to give him water, her water, contaminated Samaritan water. But not only that, it's a woman. So Jesus is breaking like 20 rules here. 20 cultural rules, 20 traditional rules, and he's a rabbi. They're going to revoke his rabbi license for this one, and he's there, and he asks her this question, and this shocks her. She says, what? what? How is it that you, and it was obvious he's a Jew, you're a Jew, and you're asking me for water, and I'm a Samaritan, and I'm a woman. But there's more to it than that. She wasn't just a Samaritan woman. She had a history, and Jesus knows about this, but Jesus isn't going to go there yet. He will in a minute, but look at what he says. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, this living water, this is something actually we saw in the previous chapter. Uh, water is, is a, uh, a symbol for the Holy Spirit, and it comes also straight from a prophecy from Isaiah 44 about the Holy Spirit being living water. Water, But what's interesting, this woman is a Samaritan. The Samaritans only had the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so Jesus, in referencing living water, the Holy Spirit, from Isaiah, this woman had no concept of Isaiah. So she had never heard that prophecy before. And so Jesus is talking about something spiritually that the woman had no context for. But also I want, you to, I want to point out, Jesus gets right to the point. He immediately starts talking about something eternal, about the kingdom of God. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't, you know, uh, start off slow with small talk, how's the weather kind of stuff. He gets right to the point because he understands the urgency that's going on in his life and in this woman's life. He may never physically see her in person again, and so he's going to get to the gospel as quickly as possible. And so he dives right in and says, if you would ask me for a drink, I would give you living water saying, I will give you the Holy Spirit. But the woman doesn't pick up on that. Verse 11, she says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she thinks still he's talking about physical water in the bottom of the well, and the well is like 100 feet deep, uh, give or take. And she says, you got nothing to, to lower down and, and, and pull the water out with. I mean, people, there was not like a well with, you know, the, the top and the rope hanging down in a bucket there. It was, it was a big hole probably with some kind of surrounding barrier with some benches there. But people would carry their own rope and their own little satchel to draw the water out because if you left it there, somebody might steal it. And so they would carry it around themselves. Uh, and so Jesus did not have one. The woman would have come out there and had her own. And she says, you got nothing to draw water with and you want to give me water? What kind of living water are you talking about? You better than Jacob who dug the well. You know, uh, he dug the well himself and it's Jacob whose name was changed to Israel that you get your name as an Israelite here and, and you're asking me to get water from you. What kind of water are you talking about? And so look what Jesus' response was. Everyone who drinks this water, pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so us with 21st century eyeballs can look at this and say, obviously Jesus is not talking about physical water. He's talking about something else. He's talking about salvation here. That if she will come to him, he will give her the, the water of salvation, the water of life. But she didn't quite pick up on that. Again, verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Something to point out, too, if you're not familiar with this passage, this, this woman is coming in the middle of the day. It's noon, remember? Typically, even today, when in the Middle East people go to draw water from a well, they do it in the morning or in the evening because it's cool. They wouldn't go out in the middle of the day. And so what history tells us is the women from the town would go and draw water in the morning and in the evening and this woman's coming in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to see anybody. She doesn't want to interact with anybody. And so she comes 
in the middle of the day when nobody's there, and obviously nobody's there, it's just Jesus and the woman. It's hot. And so she's there for a reason. She wanted to be there when nobody else was there. And so she's asking us of Jesus, and Jesus is about to change direction in his conversation. Because remember, he's trying to drive home the point of eternal life, of salvation. And this woman's not picking up what he's giving her to pick up. And so he changes direction in the middle of the conversation, and he says something extremely personal. Verse 16, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, first off, <laughs> if you were the woman and you had come to the well in the middle of the day so in order to avoid anybody being there, and then there's a guy there, a rabbi, who starts asking you for water, and he's talking about some kind of living water being inside of you and you never getting thirsty again, and then he tells you that about your history. They're probably, most likely, the reason she came in the middle of the day and didn't want to see anybody because she didn't want to have to deal with the rumors and the looks and the comments. Having had five husbands is now living with guy number six. And now this guy is telling her all of that, the stuff that she didn't want to have to deal with. He's just laying it out there. Notice something that we're going to come back to. There is no condemnation or shame in what Jesus is saying. He's just stating what is. The woman changes the subject. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And so she thinks he's a prophet, so she asks him a spiritual question, steering away from the husband issue. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now remember, the woman only had a limited perspective of God because she only had the first five books of the Old Testament. And so Jesus in saying, you worship what you don't know, you, you, you don't, she said, he, Jesus is saying to the woman, you don't have a full picture of God. Saying the Jews, we have the whole Old Testament. We have a full picture of God. And salvation comes from the Jews, not because the Jews are, are more holy than anybody else. Salvation comes from the Jews because Jesus comes from the Jews. Jesus is the salvation. And so he says salvation comes from the Jews. It's him. And he's building to, to reveal that to her. Verse 23, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now Jesus, in this conversation, is building the whole discussion to get to one point, and he's about to say it. He's, he's angling towards this moment to get the woman to ask this. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. And so she's, she, she's thinking back to all the things she's heard in Samaritan Sunday school about the Messiah coming, the Son of God coming, what that's going to look like, what that's going to be like. And it's all the stuff Jesus just mentioned. She says, I know the Messiah is going to come. Son of God is going to come. He's going to explain everything you just said because I don't know anything you're saying. He's going to come and he's going to describe it to us. And that's when Jesus drops the bomb. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the most overt moment when Jesus says to this woman who is not even a Jew, I am the son of God. It's me. It's me. I, I am the one. I, I am the son of God. I am he, and in that moment, the disciples come back, <laughs> which makes me think, have you ever been in a very serious discussion, and then maybe one of your kids comes in and asks a random question, like, why is dirt black, or, <laughs> I remember, this has nothing to do with it, Katie and I, went, years ago, we're in, uh, it was an afternoon, it was like a Saturday, we were in the bedroom, we were watching a, the TV, trying to get some rest kids from the backyard playing. And, uh, one of them starts, bangs on our window, and they're yelling something, and we can't hear what they're yelling. And uh, they just come in and tell us. So he came in. We can hear him walking through his shoes through the house, and he comes in the bedroom. Okay, what's, what's wrong? What's the problem? Oh, I stepped in dog poop. 
Well, that just completely changed the rest of my afternoon. Thank you for walking through the house. And uh, sometimes you can be in the middle of one thing, and there can be someone who comes in and completely changes the direction of the conversation. And a lot of times for Jesus, that was the disciples. And so Jesus is having this great moment. He just revealed, I am the Messiah. And the disciples show up. And look at what happens. Uh, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, well, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So even though they were okay buying Samaritan food, they still had a long way to go. They were still, you know, a little put off by the fact Jesus was talking to a woman, but they still were not about to interrupt Jesus and say, why in the world are you talking to her? Why, I mean, notice one of those questions, why are you talking, is directed at Jesus. They thought it. I mean, John, who wrote this, is one of those disciples who were thinking, well, what is he doing talking to this woman? I mean, it's a Samaritan. It's a woman. He's talking to her right here in the public. Everybody can see. Everybody and their dog can see what's going on here. And you're talking to this woman, Jesus. I mean, they had just come from town. Maybe quite possibly somebody in town had seen their rabbi, their master, their teacher talking to this woman. And maybe at the market had commented about the kind of woman this was. Do you know who that woman Jesus talking to? Like, you know her past. And so the disciples come back and they're thinking in their heads, why are you... Why here, Jesus? What? All you have to do is just sit there and not talk to this person. But they don't say it. They think it. Sometimes our thoughts betray the direction of our hearts. And so the disciples come back, and whether they said it or not, undoubtedly there was a facial expression because immediately after this, verse 28, the woman left. She left her water jar. She went into town, and she went to go gather people. Come see a man who has told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Her reaction to this interaction with Jesus, to hearing he's the son of God, is to run into town where she had come from trying to avoid people. She runs back to grab the people she's trying to avoid. This may be the Messiah, people who know her past. Maybe some of her ex-husbands. Maybe some of the, her ex-mother-in-laws. Maybe some of them are there in town. She goes, you've got to come. This could be the one. And she's, while she's gone, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples. They say to him, verse 31, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has, has anyone brought him something else to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food, the word I, actually their food literally means nourishment. The nourishment that I get to sustain me in my life is to obey God. And so telling that woman about the kingdom, that he was the Messiah, he was the salvation plan for the world, that fulfilled him. That was his nourishment. That was the will of God. And so he gives them an illustration Remember, the woman went into town, she grabbed people, and so the image is Jesus and his disciples are outside of town at the well. He's instructing them. The woman has gone into town, and now she's coming back with a crowd. And Jesus gives this illustration in verse 35. So do not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. He says, don't wait. The harvest is already coming. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, probably pointing to the people, and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have, not enter and you have entered into their labor. So here's the imagery. Jesus is pointing to those people coming. There's the harvest. There's the people who are ready to receive eternal life. So, so don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't say in four months, I'll get it done. Do it now. It's already time. They're here. Don't waste or you're going to miss it. This is the moment. And I'm, he says, I'm sending you to do the work, work that somebody's already been doing. And so if you're a Christian today in 2021 and you go to tell somebody about Jesus, like these candles, what they are representing here on the stage, you go to tell somebody about Jesus, you're already doing something, entering into the work that somebody's already been doing. You telling somebody about Jesus may not be the first time that that person's heard about Jesus, but it may be the, the time that they need to accept Christ. Somebody may have already been warming him up. 
Somebody may have already brought and planted a seed within them. Or to say, I mean, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, that another guy, that Paul planted the seed, another teacher, Apollos, came and watered the seed, but God made the seed grow within the person. So whether or not you're the first person to tell somebody about Jesus and somebody comes behind you and tell them, tells them about Jesus and they accept Christ with that person, you started the work. The other person entered into the work that you already started. And so if we're in the world right now, we're entering into a work that's already been, that has already begun. It began with these disciples. They started it. They were the ones sent out first. And so we're entering into the work having already been started. And we're to continue that work because the harvest is now. The harvest is now. There's people all over Dequeen, Sevier County, southwest Arkansas, eastern, southeastern Oklahoma that need Jesus. That need Jesus all over the place. And we can tell them about Jesus. Scripture tells us, Jesus' own mouth tells us that some of you in this room need Jesus. And you don't know it. You're walking around doing the Christian stuff, but you don't have Jesus. You may have knowledge about Jesus. You may know Son of God, born at Christmas, died at Easter, rose at Easter. You may know it, but you don't have Jesus within you. You don't believe. There's a difference between knowing and believing. And so you need to believe. And so Jesus He's trying to get his disciples to see this. And those people that the woman went and got have now arrived, verse 39. So many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. They believed because of the testimony she told them. If you are a believer in Jesus, you've had an encounter with Jesus. And so you can tell somebody about your encounter with Jesus. You can tell somebody about your testimony, about what Jesus has done in you. And so this, this woman did that to these people, and they have believed because of what she said. And so verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Unique phrase, Savior of the world. It's not really used very often in Scripture, Savior of the world, but it's used here. Used by Samaritans because of this woman's testimony and Jesus, his influence in her life. But it all began because of a conversation Jesus had with the woman. If Jesus had not talked with the woman or if Jesus had, you know, said, well, this woman's just not getting it. I'm giving up and, and going, I'm not, and I'll let somebody else deal with her. I mean, she's not figuring this out. Or if Jesus had looked at this woman and say, looked at her past, knowing her past as he was Jesus, what is, you know, many of us may have looked at the woman and said, okay, you know, I'm not going to talk to her out here in public because people are going to think things and I don't want people to think things. And, you know, people may say perception is reality and me talking to her, there's a perception there, but in reality, she needs salvation. And Jesus, <laughs> Jesus didn't care about perception. What he cared about was the fact that this woman needed help. What he cared about was that this woman needed salvation. And so he spoke to her. He interrupted her day. She would have been going about everything she was doing. She, her life would have been going the same place it was the day before if Jesus had not intervened. Her life up to this point, the reason she came in the middle of the day when nobody was there, her life up to this point had been defined by her decisions. Maybe one of never enough. Maybe never being satisfied. Honestly, maybe always being damaged. Maybe she was struggling. And she sought for help in many different avenues, many different ways, many different arms. And so Jesus brings up her past, and the woman changes the subject. But Jesus brings it up again, like I said earlier, not in condemnation, not trying to shame her because of what was at all but also trying to get her not to deny what was. Not to say, well, that never happened, but to walk through it. And I don't know your thoughts. I don't know your heart. I know mine as much as I can. And honestly, if many of us were in that position, whether we would like to believe it or not, we may have prejudged the woman. If we had the knowledge Jesus did and knowing her past and knowing her history, we may have thought things about her. Maybe the way she looked, maybe the way she was dressed, maybe the way she was acting, maybe the way she was walking. And we would have prejudged on that moment. And we would have said, oh, well, 
She's out here in the middle of the day. She deserves being out here in the middle of the day because of the decisions she made. She deserves that. I mean, she should. She, she, her life is headed in the direction it is because of the decisions she's made, and I'm just going to let it go about and run its course and not do anything to help or be, you know, who needs, she needs in the moment. But that's not who Jesus was. Jesus was a man of love because Jesus was God, and God is love, and Jesus was defined by that, and so he intervened on this woman's behalf, even saying something about her past she may not have been proud of. And he spoke here. He spoke here into her situation of salvation. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the one who has come to bring salvation. And then and a revival breaks out in a Samaritan town. Not in a Jewish town. Not in Israel. Not in Jerusalem. In the Samaritan town. A revival breaks out in such a phenomenal and incredible way. And so I would encourage you not to prejudge somebody else, not to ever say in your mind, well, they're getting what they deserve. Well, if I were in their position, I would not have made that decision. (laughs) Well, if I were in their position, I would not have done that. That is so dumb. They don't know what they're doing. They're about to run into a brick wall. And and don't think that way because you're not in their position. You're in yours. You don't know that other person's past. You don't know that other person's history. You don't know everything that went on in their life to get them to where they are. You don't know. Even if you're related to them and you feel like you know, you don't. They have different struggles than you do. They have different past than you do. Different temptations than you do. You have your own. And the ramifications of your decisions may not be as public as theirs, but they are just as sinful. Any one of us is no better than somebody else. Even though we try to act like it, and we try to puff ourselves up and make ourselves look good at the detriment of somebody else, we're not better than anybody else. In God's perspective, all of us are sinners in need of this Savior of the world. And so here is Jesus. (laughs) He is there talking to this woman in Middle of nowhere, podunk Samaria, not even in town, outside of town, a woman nobody wants to talk to, that nobody wants to deal with because of her past, and Jesus is talking to her. He sends his disciples away so they won't interrupt the conversation because this is so important to him. And so when it says he had to go through Samaria, it's not just because he was trying to get to Galilee as quick as possible because he had an appointment to make with this woman at this well, at this moment. Guys, we're getting up at 6 in the morning. We're going. Why are we getting up so early, Jesus? I've got an appointment at noon. You don't know about it yet. I'm actually going to get rid of you because you're a lot of big distraction. But we're going to get there, and we're going to have this conversation. And so Jesus goes and has this conversation. Imagine, <laughs> I try to imagine these disciples, right? I mean, you got Peter who talks all the time. John doesn't talk very much. He, he, we believe him to be the youngest. You got Judas mixed in with all those other guys. You got Simon the Zealot who wants to overthrow the government. You got Matthew the tax collector who used to work for the government. And you got their own personal inner issues. And then they had their own thoughts about why in the world is Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman? And, and then not only that, but Jesus stays for two days and a revival breaks out in the Samaritan town. What happens when they stay there a day and the revival is exploding? My, my, my mind goes to what are these disciples thinking? probably a great conflict in seeing this movement of God with their inner, you know, experience of what they have been taught their whole lives about how to think about these people. And here is Jesus, who they think is the Messiah, ministering to these people, showing them God's love, and seeing God's love demonstrated in their lives. He's breaking the, the, the traditional cultural rules that they had been instructed upon in order to bring the love to this woman and these people. So here's Jesus issuing this love to them, not communicating to his disciples that his disciples who may have lived a better life than this woman or these Samaritans, because honestly, Jesus tells us in John uh, chapter 8, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. But how many mental stones do we throw at each other sometimes? A lot. Yet people maybe. You've thrown mental stones at somebody in this room because you thought you were better than them. Or you felt you were worse, and then they thought they were better, and so you started thinking they were worse because they thought they were better. And so it's this cycle 
that goes through because they judged you, you judge them right back. They, they're so-and-so and they're doing this and they shouldn't be doing this. But the thing is, if they're thinking something about us, we can't think the same thing about them because then that drags us down to where they are. And if they are more spiritually immature and we start diving into the spiritually immature waters, then we're both become, we both become spiritually immature. I have a quote that I read in a book. I love the quote. <laughs> Don't wrestle with pigs because you'll both get muddy and the pigs will like it. <laughs> Don't dive into the mess. Don't dive into the mess. Keep your eyes fixed on, on Jesus and the Lord and what he has for you. And if somebody's got a problem with that, pray for them. They need Jesus in the same way that I desperately need Jesus because I am a sinner and I know I need Jesus. I don't know what somebody else has been through. Jesus knew what this woman had gone through. Jesus knew what some of his disciples had gone through, and he was trying to show them, trying to point them, we all need salvation. These Samaritans you hate, this woman who's made decisions that led her life to this point, she needs salvation just as much as you do, Peter, just as much as you do, John. And Jesus is communicating, that, which is why I think this takes, such, uh, takes up such a huge chunk of the book of John. I mean, John's book isn't that massive. But here are 42 verses about this woman's encounter with Jesus. This is, that's, that's a big chunk. And Jesus spends this time here dedicated to what's going on in the, in the life of this woman. Because he knows that sin is deadly and damaging for everyone. For everyone. Sin that somebody struggles with and that I struggle with may not be the same kind of sin, but a struggle is a struggle and we need to be pursuing Jesus together. And whether or not that other person who's struggling with sin tries to shame me and make me feel belittled because of what they are doing, I cannot return the favor and shame them and belittle them if they do it to me first. I may feel justified in shaming them and belittling them because they did it first. Even if I don't do it out loud, I may do it in my mind and I may feel justified because of the way they did it to me. I may feel like it's okay, but it's not. It doesn't give me the right to do it back to them. Because then I'm just doing the very thing they're doing to me that's making me feel terrible and not demonstrating the love of Jesus to them. Anybody who does that to you is not doing what Jesus instructs, is not doing what God desires to be done. If somebody belittles you and makes you feel less than, they're not living the way God wants. And so when you do it right back, it's the same thing. You're not doing what God wants. You may feel like you're right in feeling that way, but God doesn't want you to belittle somebody else. He doesn't want you to make somebody else feel like they're less than. He wants you to honor. That's why we're instructed to honor one another. Actually, Scripture says, outdo one another in showing honor. Try to one-up each other with the honor. Pray for those who persecute you, who are coming after you to get you. Say, God, I want to pray for them. I want to pray that they have a flat tire. God, I want to pray that they have pro God, I want to pray that they get sick. Don't die, but just get a little sick. God... But no, pray for blessing, pray for healing, pray for betterment. That's hard, y'all. That is hard. But it's what he desires for us in love so that we don't want to be judged by our past mistakes and our past decisions, but we should also not do that to somebody else. You see, we need to take our past and give it to Jesus. Give it to Jesus. This, 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 Jesus knew this woman's past. And so we have to pass our past to the one who gives a hope and a future. If our past isn't one of hopefulness and, and, and prosperity future, we need to hand that to Jesus and allow him to guide our future. Allow him to plan out what is to come. Because your past has passed when Jesus guides your future. Your past has passed away when Jesus guides your future. When Jesus is your guiding light, when Jesus is your compass, when Jesus is your direction, the past is gone. Even though it's still there, even though you are still a, uh, you, the you of today has been built by the past that you lived. Your past doesn't define you. Your past 
It does not define you. You are not your past when you let Jesus write your future. You are not your past when you let Jesus write your future. That doesn't mean God can't use your past. Absolutely he can. I mentioned the other day to a group who was here. If you look in Matthew chapter 1, I really don't know if I have this on the screen, Stacy, or not. I don't. Okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, we run into this woman named Rahab. Rahab, who rescued the, the Israelite spies when they were coming into Jericho. Rahab rescued them, helped them escape. Rahab, who when all of Jericho was destroyed, Rahab and her family were the only ones left alive. Rahab, who was faithful to God. Rahab, every time her name is mentioned, it's always Rahab the prostitute. Every time, Rahab the prostitute. Even after the Israelites come in and, and she ends up falling in love with and marrying an Israelite, she ends up coming into the line of the great King David, who that puts her in the line of Jesus, the ancestral line of Jesus, Rahab, the prostitute. However, in the moment that she is associated with Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, her descriptor changes. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, let's see, where are we here? Verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. You notice what's missing? She's not a prostitute anymore. She's not called a prostitute anymore. All throughout the Old Testament, other people see her as that. But now her association with Jesus removes it. It's not there anymore. It doesn't define who she is anymore because now in this lineage of Jesus, she's associated with the Son of God, not her past. And it changes who she is because of that moment. And in the same way, you are not your past when you allow Jesus to write your future. But you can't change your past. Your past is what it is. Your past is your past. You can't go back in time and change it. You're not Marty McFly. You can't pull it off. You can't change where you've been, but Jesus can change where you're going. You can't change where you've been, but Jesus can change where you're going. You, you can't take that phrase you said in the heat of discussion. You can't shove it back in your mouth. It's out there now. But you can change what you say next. You can't change that thing you did yesterday, last year, two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, that the enemy keeps bringing up and replaying that scenario in your mind like a movie on repeat. Like reruns on TV, you always catch that show at the same episode. It's always the same one. It's that way sometimes with the enemy. He'll replay that in our mind to shame us, to belittle us, to dishonor us. But not so with Jesus. You can't change what was, but he can change where you're going. Let me give you an illustration of this. I've got a compass here. Anybody know how to read a compass? Oh, it points north. You know, little numbers on the side of the compass, you know, directions. I know some of your military guys, you should know how to do a compass. I'm definitely not a military guy. And I, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's important to know. And so anyway, you can have a compass. I'm going to, he's not there. Let's see if I, okay, good. You can have a compass, and it's supposed to give you direction, show you where north is so you can know where you're going. But the compass doesn't do any good if it's in my pocket. I'm in possession of the compass. I've got a compass. But it's not guiding my steps. So because it's not guiding my steps, I kind of, even though I'm supposed to go to that door over there, that's where God wants me to go, I'm kind of wandering all over the place. Well, I'm going to go over here. I've got the compass. I've got it. I've got salvation. I've got Jesus. I've got the Holy Spirit. But even though I have it, I, I may not have it out and using it. But even if I have it out and I've got it open, and I've got it ready. Even if I've got it out, that doesn't mean I'm looking at it. And so I'll still wander all over the place. I go back here, wander up here, go in here, mess with Jose's drums, you know. And I'm all up in there, going over here, come up here by the projector, you know, and do all this. And come over here by the candles that aren't on and walk all over the place. But even if I walk all over the place and I've got the compass out, it's showing me i got to go that way. God told me that's where I'm supposed to go. That's my heading. 
But if I have the compass out and I'm not using it to, to guide my steps, it's not doing me any good. But even if I've got the compass out and I've got it open and I'm looking at it, but I don't use it to guide my steps, I just reference it every once in a while, once a day in the morning, I'll look at it once and get, okay, and I'll just walk this way and about to fall off the thing and walk over here and come over here and try to make the feedback come in the monitor and go over here. And now I'm going the opposite direction of where God wanted me to go. Even though I've got the compass out and I look at it every once in a while, but if I don't set my steps according to the compass, the word of God, the spirit speaking through God's word, then I'm never going to go where he's going. And the thing is, as Christians, we do that a lot. We may have it. We may have, you know, the influence of the spirit. We may have our salvation, but we got it packed up. in our back pocket. We got possession. We're good. We're going to heaven. But we haven't set our lives by it. We haven't directed our steps by it. And so we end up wandering all over the place. And we come to this position. And we say, okay, now, now how did, first off, how did I get here? And how do I get back to where I'm supposed to go? And we, we're walking around, not referencing, and then we're, we run into a roadblock, and we say, okay, well, God, I can't go where you want me to go. There's something in the way. I, I can't get there. God, you put the thing in my way. It's your fault that I can't get where you want me to go. But if we take out the compass, if we take out the guide, if we take out the word and the spirit and allow it to guide our steps, oh, okay, so he wants me to go that way, but if that you know, that, okay, that's, God wants me to head there, but I've got to go around. So I've got to go this way a little here. What is that? Uh, you know, 60 degrees. Now I've got to turn this way a little bit. Get over this way. Okay. I've got to go this way. It's 48 degrees. And keep walking where God wants me to go. I'm going to get where he wants me to go. If I've got the compass out and I'm allowing it to guide my steps. I can't have it packed away. I can't have it open and never look at it. I can't just look at it and not set my, my heading based upon the compass. I've got to allow it to direct my steps, allow it to guide me where he wants me to go. But in doing that, I may have wandered all over the place and made all kinds of mistakes in my journey to get where God wants me to go. And I may have bumped into a roadblock for 10 years before I finally realized what God wants me to do or where he wants me to go or what he's been telling me the whole time. Or, or he told me that, that direction, that heading he set me on. And I may have been bumping into that roadblock and not paying attention because I was doing my life the way I wanted to do my life. And I can finally get on the path to go where I needed to go. And people can bring up my past and say, well, you wandered around and you were up and down and all over the place and you were down in the muck and the mire and doing terrible, terrible things. Say, like this woman trying to ignore the past, I could say, okay, yeah. You don't need to forget where you've come from because it's still part of your journey. Right, Lynette? Still part of your journey. You see, your past... Where I've been, where you've been, where I've been has no bearing on where I'm going other than to strengthen me for the journey. Makes me stronger for where I'm going. It's not going to hold me back. It makes me stronger for where I'm going. Now we can look at that lineage of Jesus and say, there's Rahab and her life has been changed dramatically by an association with Jesus. Where you've been makes you stronger for where you're going. It prepares you for what's coming. God didn't make all that stuff happen to you. It's bad and terrible and awful. A lot of that we did to ourselves. Some of it comes because we live in a fallen world and bad stuff happens in a fallen world where sin exists. But God is still there to bring us a hope in a future. God is still there to guide us where we need to go. God is still there every single time. Every single time. And he will work all those pieces together. When I was bumping into the, the roadblock, when I was walking down the steps, when I was walking in the opposite direction, God will take all those pieces from all those different parts of my life and he will piece them together for his glory and his purpose. That's Romans 8, what, what, Romans 8, 28. I almost said Romans 18, uh, 8, 18. It's Romans 8, 28. We know that for all things, God works together for good 
for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's his followers. That's his believers. God takes all those parts of your life. He says all things, all things he works together for good. All things, every one of them. Even that thing you said you shouldn't have said, it makes you stronger for the next time. God didn't make it happen, but he can pull it together because he's God, and he can put the puzzle pieces together that don't seem to fit and turn it into a masterpiece of a life. He can take it all and make it incredible. He can take it all and make it incredible. What we have to do, though, is set our heading by his word, by his spirit, by what he directs us to do, and we are guided by him into what comes next. Whether it may be difficult, it may be the storm of our lives, but where we've been so far with him, now we are strong enough to walk through it. Only with him. Only with him. Only with him can we do it. But we've got to lean on him and allow him to pull all those pieces of our lives together and turn it into something. Not try to do it ourselves, because if we try to piece together all those random pieces of our lives, it will turn into a bigger mess than it was before. It'll turn into just a terrible, jumbled mess, and we'll give up because we can't find all the puzzle pieces. Because not honestly, it's not our puzzle to put together, it's his. And he'll put it together, and he'll make it into his perfect picture and allow you, use you to accomplish something incredible for his kingdom. And so you have to ask yourself this morning, do you first know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you even have a compass to set your heading by? Do you believe in Jesus, that he is God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven, and that he rose from the dead so that you can live after you die? Do you believe that? Believe it in your heart. Believe it in the depths of who you are. If you believe that, then you are saved. This Savior of the world is, is with you for all time. And you're going to be in heaven forever. So if you don't believe that and you want to believe that now, this is your moment. Whether you're in the room or you're watching online, this is the moment for that time. To believe. You need to make that decision right here, right now. Make the decision to believe in Jesus. I'll be here at the front, and I want to talk to you about that. Micah will be here. We, we'll, either one of us, you can talk to us. We'd love to talk to you about knowing Jesus today. And if you know Jesus, and maybe you haven't had your compass out directing the steps of your life, and you've tried to direct the steps of your life on yourself, and you keep running into a, a, a barrier, you keep walking away from where God wants you to go, and you're saying, I need to realign who I am and the life that I'm living then now is that moment for you. Pull the compass out. Set it to where he wants you to go and follow his direction. Allow him to use all that was to make you stronger for what will be. Make it so that you can, this woman walking into town sharing the gospel with those people who undoubtedly were saying bad things about her, you can use what was to tell other people about Jesus. They believed at first because of her testimony, because of what God did in her, what God is using her to accomplish. So what is it in you that God wants to use to change the world?